1962. I guess most people here were around in 1962. You excluded Nikki and myself. 1962 was the year that a gentleman called Cairns in America uh, from Detroit, where the big car companies exist, uh, designed the intermittent car wiper. I mean, have you never thought about the fact that uh, the, the fact that your car wipers have the intermittent mode, you know, when we can delay the movement, that came post the designing and the manufacture of the wiper initially. I don't know, I can't remember that far back, not that I was alive in 1962. They just went on the same speed, but he designed the, the delay as a gadget. And he tried to sell his design to the big three motor companies. And much to his surprise, no one was interested. And so he left it on the shelf, but then he was surprised as the years went on to notice the cars were coming out with his design in them. Getting nowhere in challenging what they'd blatantly done, he eventually took them to court 12 years later. It took 10 years for it to finally come to a head where Cairns won against the mighty three GM and the others, including the car companies, and he was paid out by just one of those firms, $10 million. This was back in 1988, a lot of money even now. And so the, the story is this, that this, this small minnow of a man takes on the giants of the car industry, and eventually won. And obviously I tell you that because of this incredible story. Thank you, Pippa, reading it so dramatically. I was sitting there thinking, from now on, it's going to get boring. <laughs> I, I just can't deliver it like that. But you'll get a Brummie accent, uh, you know, just to keep it somewhat interesting. Look, that story is somehow, look, it captures the sentiment of the story here that this little guy, okay, takes on this big guy and wins. It's, it's probably one of the best-known Bible stories of all time. And the danger with that, and, and it's preached often. Has it been preached here recently? Have you ever had it preached here? No? Well, there's a first. Okay. Because the thing is, it's so familiar that, that we, we can miss the wood for the trees. And the application has all kind of guises. And look, it's a popular Sunday school lesson. And we can miss what the story is really telling us. Uh, what I want to do with you, not today, but next week, is to look at what the primary and secondary application of this text is. The primary meaning its original intention. The secondary, the knock-on effects of things we can learn. But for now, we'll, we're going to go through the story. There's a lot of verses, 58 of them. And so we won't do it in our conventional manner. I can't read every every word to you, and you'll be asleep if you're not already asleep, okay? And so we're going to go through it in chunks. The text will come up on the screen, and I'm not going to read all of the story. I'm assuming that we're going to be with me and remembering it and seeing it. It's on the screen for you. So let me begin, okay? Let me begin. Verse 1. Now the Philistines gather their forces for war and assemble at Soccer and in Judah. So they've assembled, it's 1010 BC. There's your year, okay? 1045 is AD is a, is a common one for us religious folks when the church split 
from Rome, if you're interested. That's AD. 1010 BC is when this is taking place. We're looking at a small strip of land. I've got some pictures there, Nikki. It's only a tiny part of the world. Okay, there it is. Uh, we're looking at the area southwest of Jerusalem in the blue. There, the Valley of Elah in red there. There's the geography. This is real, okay? This is what it looks like there. You can see the valley there. It's a flat area. It is a place where combat could occur. You've got a satellite image over here, and then you've got a, a diagram to your bottom right where you can see how the two armies were camped. There, there's some distance, but if you ever stood between, between a valley, we used to have a house was on top of one valley, um, and then the other side, uh, the farmer used to work, and it was quite some distance, and you could hear every word he spoke, every swear word. He was forever cursing these sheep, and you could hear the whole thing from our house. And, and so, so you can understand how these two armies across some distance can communicate. That's the geography. The Philistine are a people from Crete in the Mediterranean. Uh, they've landed on the shores of this strip of land, the most contested real estate in all of the world and they've taken hold of five cities and have got ambitions to 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 one of those cities is we know the name of we often hit on the news today gaza okay so they've got ambitions now of going further into the land and taking more territory that the israelites uh, are occupying so they're in a place that people read to you called Ephes Damin. Okay, it's in a place called Sukkah. And incidentally, some of these names are still there in Israel today. Israel's camped on the opposite end in a place called Terebinth. And the battle that is due to take place will take place on a flat strip of land there. Verse 4, champion, a champion named Goliath, who was from... When did I start? Okay, a champion from... Uh, named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. That's an English translation of a Hebrew text, which also has Greek versions out there. And so, I don't know if you're aware, but there is discrepancy about the size of Goliath. In the English, in the New Testament, Old Testament, NIV rather, we're told he's over nine feet tall. There's a Greek manuscript that suggests he's only seven feet tall. So this isn't a giant. And nowhere in the text does it talk about a giant. So the first myth we want to dispel, the Bible doesn't say he was a giant. It just presents him as a particularly tall figure. Somewhere between seven feet and nine feet. And so all, straight away, we're not dealing with fantasy, okay? This is just a particular large guy. He's dressed for battle. Now, armour wasn't easy to come by. And so obviously this is someone of status and rank. Obviously he's done some military exploits. He's probably been their hero for some time. His armour from top to bottom, in fact, just the armour that's covering his body weighs, they say, something like 57 Ks. Okay, double my body weight, fully clothed, shoes and all. <laughs> yes, <laughs> almost, almost, okay. And so, so he's clothed well, he's protected well rather, he's armed well, a javelin, okay. He's got an armor bearer, 
That's some little fella who goes ahead of him, carrying a large rectangular uh, shield. So you're going to have very little chance penetrating this man's armament. Eight to ten, we're told that he comes and he, and he, and he puts, he presents an alternative, alternative to battle. I mean, bloodshed is, is a terrible thing. And some of you guys have been in the military. And Goliath is suggesting that as an alternative, representing his people, as an alternative to combat between armies and losing hundreds, perhaps thousands of men, they should just have a duel between two to decide the fate of this warfare. Winner takes all. The losers become servants by choice, and therefore you, you, you don't lose your, your army. The winners become the conquerors. He goes, look, am I not a Philistine? And you know, you know, you're not the servants of Saul. Choose a man and let's fight. And he does this for 40 days because obviously day after day after day, twice a day, no one wants to take on this, this incredible stature of a man. Not even the king. Look at the verse 11 is a key verse here. And, and it, it's one that, that, that just really reflects everything that's going on with Israel at this juncture in the history. Verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, it, an invitation to settle this between two people. Saul, the king of Israel, and, and all the Israelites with him were dismayed and terrified. Dismayed and terrified. He speaks of defeat, doesn't he? They've lost before they've even started. But it's peculiar because you have to remember who Saul is. I mean, what do you know of Saul? Saul was anointed to be the first king of Israel. We're told about him that when he heard a taunt from the Ammonites then towards the people of Israel, this was his response. Okay, well, when, when an entire army taunted Israel, when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power and he burned with fire. They say Moses was a man who could get angry. Saul was a man who could get angry at, at anything he saw as, as, as uh, uh, unjust. Okay, is that a word? Uh, unjust, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, and not only is Saul someone who can get enraged okay, uh, about a situation that lacks justice, he's someone who perhaps, of all the people of Israel, he's perhaps the one man who was a match for Goliath. Like I said, I think we've got to get out of our minds giants. The Bible doesn't refer to him as a giant. He's just a particularly large man. Okay? But Saul was Saul. Saul was Saul. Look, this is what's said of him in, in 1 Samuel 9. That he's a Benjamite, okay? An impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head, a foot, a head taller than any of the others. Can you see the picture here? If anyone was a suitable combatant against Goliath, it's Saul. He may even have been of a similar stature. And yet when Saul hears the retort of this one man, 
We're told that he was dismayed, dismayed rather, and terrified. And you're asking yourself, and, and we'll look at this next time. You know, we, we have, in order to understand what the Bible's teaching, we have to look at the flow of what's going on here. This, this is just one chapter in a massive book. Something incredible dynamic has occurred between chapter 9 of Samuel and chapter 17 of Samuel. Does anybody know what's, what's happened to Saul? What are, the, what are some of his experiences? Anyone recall? Yes, so God's spirit had actually left him and he began to be tormented. His spirit left him because the, on, two, on two episodes, one episode, two situations. First of all, he disobeys a direct command of God to assassinate all of the Amalekites. And worse, he assumes the role of a priest. Remember, he gets fed up of waiting for Samuel. You know, because Samuel was meant to sacrifice. And what does Saul do? Because he can't be bothered to wait for Samuel? He presumes a sacrifice. It's a sacred thing. And God tells him through the mouth of Samuel, it's game over for you, mate. God withdraws his spirit and he is. And so you see the impact of the spirit of God and, and the removal of that spirit taken now from Saul after his downfall in just those few chapters and given to, instead given to David. 1 Samuel 16, just the previous chapter. Samuel goes up to, to David's household and, and anoints David and the Spirit of the Lord who was upon Saul now comes upon David. This is what New Testament days are incredible days because back in Jewish Old Testament days only a select few individuals received God's spirit so it was upon Saul it now comes upon David hence verse 11 can you see what verse 11 is showing it's showing the impact of Ichabod you know when God departs and God leaves that the people here utterly destroyed the king included Saul is no leader at this junction he should have stepped down and he doesn't, obviously, and this goes on, it gets bloody. He should have stepped down, but he's no leader. David now comes on the scene. Because we hear about him in chapter 16. Chapter 17 is a brand new chapter. And we're told that he's the youngest. Okay, he has three older siblings. He's the runt of the litter, okay? Do we have any youngest here? Uh, you know, it's, it's not a nice place in a family, so they say. Don't ask me, I'm not the youngest, but... I had a family that was strangely divided, so I'm not a good witness of what this looks like. But I imagine it's not a nice position. He's the youngest. He's given the job no one else wants to do, look after sheep. I think that's quite a nice Well, it appears to be a nice job. I wouldn't mind a job like that, okay, in my old age, which is some way away, Nikki, before you say anything. Okay, <laughs> he's the runt of the litter, okay? He ends up with the worst job in the family. His brothers are men of Saul, fighting in the front line, okay? He's so insignificant, this fella, that when Samuel comes to, to Dave, Jesse's household, and he's looking to anoint somebody, his father, <laughs> you know the story, he doesn't even bother calling him in. He calls the big honky brothers in, but he doesn't even bother calling David in, assuming that nobody in their right mind will be looking for David. 
And it's only when Samuel refuses to anoint any of these guys before him that, that Jesse eventually brings in David. And God says, that's the man. It, there's so many secondary applications from what we're going to look at today. We'll look at some of them next week. If I do them today, we'll never finish. Okay, so David, we have to look. We're told that he was ruddy and fine appearance and handsome. Sounds like they're describing your pastor, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, there you go, mate. You missed that one. Okay. Okay. All except the young bit, obviously. Okay. So look, he's more of a catwalk model than a warrior. Okay. You know, looking after sheep is kind of protected this man. He doesn't have the working hands of a, of a fighting man. We're told that early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set up, set out. At, as his father had directed him, he reached the camp where the army were about to go out to, to battle, shouting the war cry. So his dad sends him on this errand to go and see to his brothers. He leaves the sheep in good care. He arrives on the front line, all excited. You can imagine the frustration. It wasn't the day of, of, of ABC News. Okay, we have such access to news today, don't we? And it's a terrible thing. Can I encourage you? Don't listen to it. Seriously. I don't. Really? Or limit how much exposure. We're not designed for this level of information. We're not. No one should be privy, privy to the level of information that we get in our news 24 hours a day. My phone doesn't stop blink, 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 blink. You know, knock it off. It'd be much better for your mental health. Seriously. And so David has no access to news. You know, and in those days, you're wondering, you know, what's going on? So he gets an opportunity. You can imagine how exciting this is. He's getting to go onto the front lines. He's going to witness warfare. Okay? When he gets there, it's not a battle he sees, but a standoff. He hears the Philistines retort. Okay? And David is indignant. He, he, listen to his response. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Circumcision is a mark of, of being in or out. You're either in by being circumcised a Jew or you're out by not. Okay, it's a demar, mar, line of demarcation. Okay, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And you see who the true leader is in this. You got Saul who is dismayed and terrified. And you've got David, okay, who's with, the reader knows he's been anointed to be king, and you're wondering, what's, what, this, what is this fellow like? This is what he's like. Okay, when he hears this retort, he's indignant, he burns with anger. And so finally, okay, he, he's, he, he demonstrates his interest, and finally word gets to Saul that someone within his within his people, within the ranks of the army, he assumes, is interested in taking on Goliath. He's brought, to da he's brought to Saul. David stands before him. And David says to Saul, verse 32, uh, is, it, is this really hard to keep up with me, Nikki? No. Okay, thank you. Okay, David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. It's hilarious. It's actually a bit of humour. 
I remember once being in the east and uh, we were waiting at uh, a train station and we had this huge piece of luggage, a suitcase, it was almost as big as me, it's about this high, okay, you know it's like you just take a lot of stuff with you when you travel, what some of us do, okay, and this little fella, he, and a suitcase I'm sure was bigger than him, Kid, no, no joke, about a 10 year old boy comes running up to us and says, I'll carry your luggage, I'll carry your luggage, for the tip obviously, <laughs> he's looking at him, and he's smaller than the, than the case, and I think it was hilarious, here, okay, you've got David, Okay, there's nothing is said of his stature. There's nothing impressive about him. And he wants to take on this, this guy. Saul is not impressed. But Saul needs somebody to go. Because what's going to happen? If Saul doesn't send somebody against Goliath, what will be there? What were the people expecting? What will, I, what will the people say? Yeah, that's, that's what they're all thinking. They're all waiting for him to go. So here's a copper. This is great. It's the perfect opportunity for him. Look, he goes, you're not able to go out. At least he's got a bit of a conscience, this guy. Look, you can't fight against him. He tries to resist him. But with it, you can imagine, can't you, his initial response is, this is absurd. But then the, the, the money sign is going around in his head, isn't he? Oh, actually, this is it. It's perfect. I'll send him, and then I don't have to go. Okay, and so he's prepared to send this young fella, and in order to ensure that he, that he looks like the king is involved, he gives him his armor. Now remember, Saul is probably of a similar stature to Goliath. He's huge; he's a huge bloke. David, we're assuming, is nothing like that. And so this handsome and ruddy of appearance. Okay, thank you. Yes, we don't need those in us, you know, in this church, do we? But thank you, anyway, Nikki. And look, so look, yes, everything that I'm not, okay, okay, everything. And so it gives him a shot. It gives him his armor. His armor is obviously is not going to work uh, for whatever reason. Besides, what Saul doesn't realize, David is not going to go up against Goliath with conventional weaponry. He needs dexterity. He needs to be able to move. He's got this thing in hand already. David has thought this through. He's obviously a wise kid. This isn't just some knee-jerk reaction. Well, I'll take him on. David knows exactly what he's going to do. He has no need for the army. He puts it aside. Instead of first thought, he was told, he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from a stream, put them in his bag, Along with his sling, I'm going to approach the Philistine. Why do you think it, he chose those pieces of weaponry? God told him to? Possibly. I wasn't thinking that. That is a possibility. Anything else? Something he's often used. Yeah, I think it's, just, it's, it's that mundane. Mm. That this is what he's familiar with. I remember I was into karate as a little kid. Watch out, okay. And I went to my, uh, my first competition. And I could do the first kata, the first little movement thing, okay, like off by heart, blind, okay. I, 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 you know, I was particularly adept at it, uh, but I thought I've got to impress the judges to win this competition. So I chose uh, a movement, okay, that I wasn't familiar with, but that was more complex, because I thought it would impress the judges. The whole thing went to pots. <laughs> okay, and I got nowhere in this competition. Okay, I ended up buying a, buying a trophy just to make myself feel better. Okay, I should have just gone with the first one. I knew it well. 
Okay? David goes into battle with what he knows best. That's what it is. These are, these are the tools of his trade. He's a skilled person. Okay, this is, this, you know, we can do this sometimes, you know, we just step out in faith. It's not faith if it's stupidity. And sometimes as Christians, there has to be a distinction between faith and stupidity. I have a friend, I won't mention his name. He may listen to this, please forgive me. Okay, he once ran out of, ran out of petrol in his car. Okay, <laughs> way out in the sticks. You can't have the sticks even in Britain, okay? You just don't travel 10 hours, you just got 10 minutes. Okay, he's way out into the sticks. Okay, he ran out of petrol. He thought to himself, you know where this is going? Jesus can, con can convert water into wine. Where do you think this is going? <laughs> so he can convert water into petrol. He didn't go. His car didn't move. Okay? He damaged it. Okay, there's a fine line between faith and stupidity. Okay, faith and presumption. David is not presumptuous. He knows that he's a skilled bearer of the sling. He knows how good he is with it. He takes the weapon that he is most suited to. And so you have to, so although this is, this appears, and this is some of the myth, you know, of, of, of an impossible, it's not so impossible. Okay, it may be like an Apache, I've got a picture here, Nikki, of an Apache helicopter against a, a lone soldier, okay, you know, you know, what chance would a lone soldier have against an Apache military aircraft? You know, a lone soldier who's skilled with a, with a weapon in hiding stands a chance. And so I think we've got to look at this story as something where, where it's not, the odds aren't stacked as high as we assume. Okay, not only that, what advantage does David have with a sling over so, uh, Goliath with a, with a javelin and a uh, sword? Speed. Distance and speed, yes. You can sling a stone far further than you can any weapon. That, so he's got the advantage that he can take the first shot. So, can you see, this, is, this isn't stacked up against David as much as we imagine. And not only that, another thing, you know, this is fairly, I want to suggest to you, this is reasonably matched. Those are against him, but it's reasonably matched. Not only has he got a weapon that has an advantage over Goliath, he's got speed over him too. But thirdly, what does chapter 16 tell us about David? It's something we miss in the story because the narrator deliberately leaves it out to heighten up the tension. What do we know about David? He was a brave... Yeah, we know that much. He was brave in his, in, in his domain. But more than that, he was actually serving Saul both as a musician and as a... Warrior, armor bearer. He calls him a warrior. So, 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 so there's more to David. Hey, be careful of the little guys. Seriously. Okay, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, <clears throat> there was more to David's skill set than we imagined. One Samuel sixteen. He is a brave man and a warrior. And so they come together. Look, look. I need to try and get towards the end here. Verse 42. They come together. He looked over David, the Goliath, and saw there was only a boy, a young man, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. 
He was expecting something more of an equal. And he's particularly perturbed by the sticks. What do you think that is? He's particularly perturbed, Goliath is, by the sight of the sticks. Because he's suggesting what? He's almost suggesting, David, what's David almost saying? I'll give you a clue. Uh, snooker. I know it's not so popular here. It's very popular in the UK. I used to watch it you know, avidly. Uh, uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan, uh, back in the uh, 80s and 90s, okay, Ronnie O'Sullivan is up against a Canadian. I've got his name here. Alain uh, somebody. 1996 it is. And he's up against him and he's thrashing him. And it's such a show off Ronnie. Okay. that he starts playing left-handed. As a right-handed snooker player. And beating him left-handed. The Canadian walks off, you know, refused, refused to shake his hand because of the insult. Can you see what Ronnie was saying? I can beat you, my left hand. Can you see what, what, how Goliath is reading the sticks? As though David is saying, hey, mate, I don't care how big you are. It's hitting his pride. Yeah. I, I, I can I knock you down with this stick, man. And so he's particularly perturbed at the insult here. The rhetoric is common. You know, in our in boxing matches, the rhetoric is common. You know, the two opponents would, would, would you know, give off the bravado. You know, it's like when you were school, Ricky, and, you know, somebody was bullying you and say, hey, I'll knock your block off. And the, and the other person would say, no, hey, I'll knock you out. And then you'd say, hey, well, you want to see my brother? Hey, he's a black belt of karate. And then the other guy, hey, you want to see my dad? He carries a pistol everywhere he goes. And that's kind of what's going on here. It's this talk, you see, designed to, 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 to muster and to, uh, to knocking fear into your opponent. And so it's typical. What's not typical or what is unconventional is the disproportionate size and stature. Whatever David was, he was nothing of a match to to this Goliath. It reminds me of that boxing match in the 80s um, between uh, Frank Bruno and Mike Tyson. Was that big here? Okay. Okay. Bruno was a big fella. Tyson was somewhat smaller. Uh, and, but nevertheless, he was, he was fairly evenly matched. Tyson may have been small, but he was a hefty fella. Here, this is not evenly matched. It's totally uneven. And so here we are. Here's David. The key important thing about David, uh, look, I'll take another five minutes up and we'll be done, is that he's a Jew, he's an Israelite. And this is what's getting to him. Look, here's what's said about the Jews, Deuteronomy 6, 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the planet. I'll just skip the, the quote there, Nikki, out of all the planets, of the, all the earth. The Jews were unique. Of all the people on the planet, their whole history and conception, their birth and their existence was tied to God. Uniquely, like no other people on the face of the planet. They were his selected people at the time, chosen to be a witness to him and to bring about his justice. That's what the wars are about. I haven't got time to go into it right now. But the wars are about God's justice being met. David knew that. Saul should have known that. Because to oppose the Israelite people, because they were the divine arm of God, the arm of the divine was to oppose God himself. It's why David says to the Philistine, you come against me sword and spear? 
for I'm coming against you in the name of God. Your resistance of the army of Israel is a resistance against God. And David understands that what will take place today is divine indignation, divine justice, divine warfare. I use those very cautiously. They're not terms we use today. They were specific to the time, specific to the day. David, here's a quote, David sees beyond the hopelessness of the Valley of Elah, rather than an uncertain situation which others are frozen by fear, David sees clearly that Yahweh has given given victory against such an enemy as this defined Philistine Goliath. You see, the odds are stacked against one opponent here. They are. It is a, a minnow against a mammoth. But it's not the way we imagine. Because the minnow in this scene is Goliath. Who is bigger than God? When you take on God, you're not a giant. You are the minnow in every case. And so the odds are stacked up, you now see, not against David, but against Goliath. This is only going to go one way. David's way. It can only go that way. And look, this is a sellout, sellout okay, show. But, but whilst people are buying hot dogs down at the kiosk, it's all. What's the visit in the lose? It's completed. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran towards him, towards the battle line. He obviously needed additional speed to launch his weaponry. He wanted an advantage position. It reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground, out with the blow, KO'd by one stone he's not dead he's just unconscious but he's down unable to fight the armor bearer is not a, not a man of war he just carries a, carries a weapon he may have fled by this moment we, we shouldn't imagine David goes up to him we told drew his sword and finishes the job and then unlike the promise remember uh, Goliath promised that if you defeat me then we'll surrender they don't surrender they flee and so the Israelites chased them for nine k's down the road back to where they came from. You know, you know that old saying, you know, I'm going to knock you back to kingdom come? They do. They chased them back, dead and all, back to where they came from, to the entrance of Gath and Ekron. That's the story of David and Goliath. It wasn't so dramatic as Pippa's presentation. But that's what we have here. That's the text. For nine k's, Goliath's people fled for their lives. Well, what do we do with it? And that's what we've come to. I haven't got time to go into what we do with it. I want to give you just one point, if we can, before. But I want, I want to ask you to do this. Would you rem try and recall what we've said? You can listen to it afresh online. It'll be up there by tomorrow, I should think. And here's the homework. Our homework together is... What is, what is this text? What did this text mean to the people who read it? What's his position in the canon of Scripture? Why is it there? 
What's his chief message? What is the chief message of the Bible? John 5.39 is a key there. If you remember that, John 5.39 is a key to, key to how to read this passage. And here's the chief thing we need to, we need to ask us this coming week. What is the primary application of this text? The first and foremost, the most important aspect, the one that we must never forget, and what are the secondaries? And there's multiple secondary applications which we'll look at next week. I'm going to give you one just for now. Here's one secondary application as I close now. Hey, whatever the odds that are stacked against us in 2022, in whatever our personal circumstances and battles may be, whatever the odds, however loud that enemy may be shouting, whatever our news, okay, okay, you know, you know, corners us with, whatever it is that we struggle with in our private spheres of life, or public, the odds, if God is for you, it's a New Testament text now, if God is for you, who can be against you? I think we have to understand that as the people of God, when we go into the world, when we do gospel work, whatever size we are, and in some ways we resemble David, it's just a small flock. The odds may always seem to be stacked against us, individually, corporately. Going into 2022, we've started the year with, with, this, with the odds stacked against us as, as a human race, haven't we? But as the people of God, the people of Yahweh, those who believe in His Son, the, the one thing I want to just give you as a secondary point of application, but what I want to leave you with today is that however much the odds may be seen to be stacked against us, individually, corporately, with Jesus, they're always actually in your favour. Jesus says, I'm with you. Nothing, is Nothing, thank you Lorraine, is impossible. I'm with you, always. Never will I leave you. I can do all things. Hey, going to 2022, can I encourage you with that? The, stack, the odds aren't stacked against you. They're not as they seem. Nothing is as it seems. The odds are in your favour. The Lord is with you. The Lord is going ahead of you. The Lord will see you through. The Lord will protect you. The Lord will watch over you. The Lord will fulfil his purpose for you. Come one man.